In Pursuit of Plants. Welcome to our latest episode of In Pursuit of Plants. And today we're having version two of our interview with Linnea Kuglish, who you may remember from our previous episode, talking about our project looking at the Manchester Museum's Materia Medica collection. This time we're talking about Linnea's PhD thesis, because she has now finished her PhD, which is a goal to aspire to for the rest of us. So yeah, do you want to give an introduction to yourself for those of people who've just joined? I would be overjoyed to. Thank you, Gemma. It's not a particularly straightforward discipline. I'm trained as a historical archaeologist, um, and what that means is essentially I look at the past uh, using the sort of physical evidence of life in the past, so material culture specifically, and the sort of difference between general archaeology and historical archaeology is that in historical archaeology, you're sort of looking at the past through the lens of material culture with the advantage, I would say, of having access to oral uh, evidence, so people's, you know, ethnographical reports, or uh, primary source materials, so things like inventories, or letters, or books. Anything that's written, essentially, <laughs> plays into historical archaeology if you do it quite right. And more specifically, I have focused on the archaeology of institutional life, and more specifically still, the archaeology of life in medical institutions. So hospitals, or medical wards in prisons, in schools, other sort of large social organizations that have a very kind of regimented uh, schedule that exists with this sort of intention of taking members of a specific demographic, so say the criminal, uh, the poor, sometimes women, <laughs> just a broad variety of people who are sort of traditionally othered and just slammed into these kind of physical and social environments that are intended to reform them in body or in mind. Fascinating research, basically. So, with the theme of IPOP being plants, where do plants fit into your research? Uh, so, they fit just about everywhere. We're going to be focusing very specifically on one case study that I've looked at and just one aspect of that case study. I think for a bit of sort of contextual background, the 19th century was sort of an era in which you saw a really kind of like mass emergence and sort of redesign of institutions. Um, so, I mean, prisons, for example, have a very lengthy history, but it was only in the kind of like early 19th century that penitentiaries, which focused on reform instead of punishment, emerged. And there were a number of different kind of material and social mechanisms in place in these institutions. Some of them were more punitive, like prisons, but others like hospitals, asylums uh, for the poor, or for women who didn't have a male guardian, for example, or were thought to need a bit more structure. Those sorts of places had a more paternalistic approach, where essentially it was like the individual was being uh, transplanted into something of a family. You know, you were supposed to be immersed in structure and moralizing structure. And 
one of the features of this kind of like historical period was this tension, as I think was pointed out in Jamie Farrington's podcast a couple of episodes ago. There's this tension between industrialized sort of like urban life and the beautiful, relaxing, moral and spiritually healthy uh, sort of rural or natural life. Um, and the institutions that I've focused on as part of my doctorate at lunatic asylums, which were big institutions essentially, that provided treatment and more optimistically uh, cured individuals who were diagnosed as insane or as being lunatics. And these are historical terms. I would not recommend their use in everyday life. So these individuals were viewed as having been exposed to the kind of pernicious influence of modern life and the city, specifically. Oh, damn, I'm not sure I've put that particularly elegantly. <laughs> so I guess with you're saying that the kind of problems stem from city life, so they, do they kind of embrace like the idea of nature a lot more? Yes, that is absolutely the case. And um, my region of expertise is the United States. If you couldn't tell by the accent, uh, that's my home turf. 19th century America in particular, there was a lot of anxiety about the uh, sort of like dangerous impact that the city would have on the not only moral, but also physical and spiritual health of people. Um, and during the kind of early 19th century, and uh, often it's discussed as sort of emerging during the Jacksonian era, which was sort of like 1830s, 1840s, um, there was a great deal of kind of like societal angst about this. There's a lot more social mobility happening, so people were moving between communities, which had previously been providing a lot of structure. They were moving up and down the kind of social and economic ladders, and most of all, people were concerned about their moving away from the kind of lovely pastoral landscape. The spiritually and morally healthful uh, community, which was typically envisioned as being kind of like centered in the countryside, this kind of rural agrarian life, into cities which were not well regarded uh, in many respects. So you had a number of both sort of medical and lay reformers who are picking up this transition into the city and pointing it out as essentially a uh, bad influence on people's mental and physical health. So how did the asylums kind of try and compensate for that in their kind of treatments? That is a brilliant question. So the lunatic asylum uh, introduced a lot of kind of structural and geographical elements that were meant to kind of correct the harmful influence of the city. Um, so, for example, whenever possible, and particularly after public asylums started being reformed around mid-century, mid-19th century, these buildings were sort of placed in rural locales, and engagement with the natural world was very actively integrated into the curative regime. So, Normally, agricultural endeavors, so like farming, growing plants, would have been a key part of the occupational regime. So patients were basically put to work in order to cure their deviant mental state, which, whether that was therapeutic or not, functionally remains to be discussed. <laughs> they were also taken outside on kind of more 
recreational uh, activities. So patients were taken outside for walks. They were encouraged to play sort of group sports. And all of these kind of uh, landscape features had to be physically kind of built into the world that the sort of like physical buildings and structures of the institution were uh, set upon. That's really interesting. So specifically within kind of the asylums you've been looking at, how has this idea of kind of nature and plants tied into the kind of I'm going to say curative regime, but obviously that's the wrong word. (laughs) No, curative regime is a totally relevant term here. So the main case study that I focused on in my thesis was the Western Washington Hospital for the Insane, which originated in 1871 as the Lunatic Asylum of Washington Territory. Uh, So this building, this institution, has a very long history. The site is actually still in operation today as a hospital, uh, which is now known as Western State Hospital. So the institution opened in 1871. Uh, it received its first 21 patients in what was essentially a converted military garrison. And while the buildings weren't ideal in a traditional sort of like setup, you were expected to build a specific sort of building with a very formulaic uh, layout and arrangement. So while it didn't originate in a purpose-built building, the site was selected very specifically on account of its sort of beautiful natural scenery and positive sort of like association and proximity to nature. So does that tie in a bit with what Jamie Farrington was talking about in his episode, way back in episode three, about the idea of a therapeutic landscape was helpful for kind of both mental but physical health. Absolutely. So when the uh, Western Washington Hospital, which I'm just going to refer to as the hospital now, when the hospital was established, it was situated on about 600 acres of land. And there are some really lovely evocative uh, descriptions of the sort of like area it was located. In 1877, the special correspondence of the Washington Standard reported that the hospital was situated in a magnificent park covered with grand and lofty shade trees, beneath whose spreading branches the weary traveler can rest himself on a couch of velvet. That is a very... uh picturesque description going on there isn't it kind of put in my mind like you know when you go to now like the national trust sites like the kind of historic homes you kind of walk around the gardens they're just a really like stunning surroundings and like nice walk stuff like that doesn't sound like an asylum (laughs) (laughs) no it i mean it's a really interesting kind of like tension. The contemporary portrayals of these institutions are quite different from at least the described reality of them. Um, Nobody nowadays would want to be transported into the 19th century and institutionalized. Institutional life in general is just a very unpleasant kind of thing. But I think we do these landscapes a bit of disservice when we don't recognize that, particularly for the wealthy, gorgeous landscaped grounds were a sort of major feature of them. Um, Whether or not patients got to engage in the ways they liked in those grounds is another question. So is that the main audience for the kind of asylum? Was it kind of like the wealthy people then who kind of were patients there? So there were different institutions that catered to different sort of social classes. The hospital was a public institution, so it catered predominantly to people who couldn't afford treatment in other sort of 
more expensive institutions. Uh, and it could be quite costly to, particularly in a private or well-to-do institution, keep a family member. Very kind of picturesque garden therapeutic landscape. Was that ever really used by the patients or was it kind of designed and kind of maintained for them? A bit of both, but in the case of the hospital, the patients were absolutely the ones who created it in many respects. So as I've kind of mentioned, the site of the institution was selected because it was just so kind of beautiful and scenic. To the southwest of the original hospital building, you had Mount Rainier, which is a very, very gorgeous uh, kind of iconic part of uh, eastern Washington. Um, just kind of looming behind the hospital, hopefully not too um, <laughs> unsettlingly, now that I say it that way. Um, there were also a bunch of lakes, and there was direct access to the uh, Chambers Bay, which is an inlet of the Puget Sound. Um, so you had this sort of like assemblage of biomes that patients were encouraged on a daily basis to kind of walk through. Yeah, so patients were actively engaged in the sort of creation and improvement of this uh, in-place sort of beautiful landscape. So when the hospital was first founded in 1871, they essentially rented a uh, collection of old buildings that had been abandoned by the U.S. government. So they had sort of a horticultural kind of program going on if they were maintaining the garden spaces. Yeah. So after the first batch of patients was moved in in 1871, there were a lot of efforts to create agricultural land. By 1877, about 20-acre tract of land had been planted up uh, with various fruits and vegetables. Uh, they had an orchard of over 300 fruit trees, so things like plums and pears and cherry trees, which all of those varieties are very common in that region of the United States. By 1881, that had been sort of doubled up to over 40 acres, but at this point, the garrison was still essentially being rented from the United States government. So the uh, residents of the institution had free use of the land, basically, and they were renting the buildings and had free use of those as well, and they had converted them from a military garrison into a kind of residential institution. But... Improvements to the landscape really picked up in 1877. So at this point, Superintendent John Wapp, who is one of the kind of longest-running superintendents of the institution, uh, had been hired into his role, and he was instrumentally involved in getting the sort of physical site of the hospital finalized. Uh, as I think I've kind of mentioned previously, the buildings of the garrison had been rented rather than purchased, so there was no formal permanent site for the Lunatic Asylum. And it was around this time that the name changed from the Lunatic Asylum of Washington Territory to the Western Washington Hospital for the Insane. And after this new building opened, um, and after the site had been finalized, patients' labor started being channeled into improving the sort of grounds around the new building, because they wanted, you know, they wanted people to have a gorgeous, relaxing space to engage with. So the space itself became kind of, again, with the therapeutic landscape, the kind of 
planting and caring for these kind of new spaces became really important I guess with the therapeutic care so medicinal plants or plants generally kind of tied into this idea that plants help improve mental health and things like that. Indeed, indeed. Um, And it wasn't without its challenges at the Western Washington Hospital for the Insane either. Uh, They were essentially located on a prairie, so the soil in that sort of landscape is generally very poor, and they had to develop a really intensive horticultural program in order to kind of take this sort of dull, well, by their descriptions, uh, dull and dried out looking landscape and turn it into something that fit better with the kind of natural ideal, the ideal natural landscape that they were looking for. So they wanted something that, you know, had a kind of pastoral appearance, improved nature. So nature as a kind of construct, and in this case, a very therapeutic or medicinal construct, if you uh, look at it that way. So in 1890, they uh, they started up their very intense landscaping regime. In 1890, the uh, landscaping program kicked off, and what that essentially involved was planting up the area to the east of the hospital, so the front facade area. And if you take a peek at the gorgeous map that I provided you, and that should be on the blog post, you can see the area just in front of the hospital. They essentially had to haul large amounts of mud from nearby Mud Lake, as it was very evocatively called, which was located a little less than a mile to the south, so right down there. They had to just go by and dredge the shallows and grab fertile mud and just bring it and spread it in front of the like building facade, which after a couple of years they managed to actually plant up with, I think it was a beautiful coat of white clover. And they were also very set on growing uh, ornamental plants and decorative trees. And when they were planting those, they had to literally excavate the holes for these plants, fill them with good mud, plant the tree, fill them with more good mud, and haul the bad soil away and dump it somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) And the idea of good and bad soil. (laughs) Yeah, again, it very much drives home the idea that therapeutic landscapes and nature is a sort of constructed phenomena in these sorts of areas and contexts. But, um, and after the 1890s, the uh, sort of intensity of this regime very much picked up. And in 1892, the institution's first greenhouse was established. Yes, because you told me that they used to grow bananas, which is quite impressive for Washington, really. Indeed. They don't quite have the climate now, and they didn't have the climate then. (laughs) Yes. So over the course of the kind of late 19th and early 20th century, there were a succession of different greenhouses used. And looking at the archival and archaeological records, you see some really interesting things about how horticulture evolved and how horticulture was used as a part of the curative regime. So uh, occupational therapy, basically putting patients to work, was viewed as a really important part of the uh, moral management framework of treatment, which essentially posited that mental illness was mental, moral, and kind of emotional phenomena, rather than something that was rooted as we would to some extent, probably acknowledge uh, in the body or the brain. And in the United States, this sort of like treatment framework emerged in the early 19th century, 
I think the first uh, institution that explicitly integrated moral treatment was founded in 1814 on the uh, East Coast. But in the sort of Western frontier on the West Coast, the approach continued to be used well into the 20th century. So they had patients growing bananas and other kind of interesting things as well as kind of normal kind of ornamental stuff. Is there any evidence of them growing any medicinal plants or plants that may have been used in their treatment? Or was it just the idea of them being medicinal in the sense that they were medicinal in the fact that they're growing them and this idea of therapeutics through landscaping, and gardening and horticulture? There is no evidence that I'm aware of that suggests that there was a medicinal garden at the hospital. And part of that may relate to the fact that it was difficult to manage patients when they were out on the grounds in a lot of respects. And I mean, just looking at kind of 19th century literature, you might know more about this than I would, but there are often these kind of horror stories of children stumbling into the, you know, physician's garden and eating the delicious nightshade berries. Having a medicinal garden on site would have been a health and safety risk, essentially. Controlling patients' movements once they were on the institutional grounds became a lot more challenging than looking after them in indoor spaces. And I think it would have been a safety risk that just may not have been worth it for them. Completely makes sense. So I guess my next question was more on the practicality of your thesis. So kind of coming at it from an archaeological perspective, did you go on kind of, what kind of things did you find when you were doing digs and stuff there? So my research is actually based in the analysis of archaeological materials from multiple case studies that hadn't really been explored in a non-technical sense before. So I went ahead and traveled to a bunch of different museums and did what's called functional analysis. So essentially looking at uh, archaeological artifacts that had been excavated and keeping the uh, data related to where they'd come from in mind, deciding what sorts of activities they represented. So, for example, uh, relating to horticulture, we have a large number of terracotta planting pot fragments from the Western Washington Hospital for the Insane, which can tell us a good deal about how uh, horticulture took place in these greenhouses and to a slightly different extent on the wards. You always have amazing pictures whenever I walk past your desk because me and Linnea share, oh, when Linnea was doing her PhD, shared an office. So I was walking past Linnea's desk on the way to find it's like, oh, look, there's a really cool image. And my favourite one is like when you've got um, glass fragments and stuff. Sorry, it's a slight conversation jump from horticulture. But the glass jars, were they kind of containing medicines and pharmacy that was plant-based or were they mainly kind of general things? So that was a complete conversation jump, but also just general oh, interest no. for me. That's actually a really interesting question. It's really tricky with those objects in particular to tell what they contained, uh, mostly because, as I think you will have picked out in some of your own research, dispensing typically involved basically preparing a compound and popping it into an unmarked bottle. So unless you were able to do some very sophisticated chemical analyses, which are not my remit, <laughs> you really wouldn't know what was happening in there. There are a couple of good examples of glassware that were pre-prepared chemicals. So, for example, there is a bottle of uh, Sharp and Dome's Lepactic pills, which 
contained a absolute mess of uh, harmful chemicals that were used to uh, operate as a laxative, essentially. But the reason that you can figure out what's happening in that bottle is because it's been essentially embossed and it's very distinctively shaped. So your PhD is kind of using the hospital as kind of a case study. Is there anything you kind of picked out from that with respect to kind of, I guess, your example of horticultural programs and stuff like that in relation that could be kind of tied into wider practices or are these very kind of specific to the hospital that you were looking at? That's a brilliant uh, segue here. So looking at the terracotta planter fragments, for example, you can use a lot of advice literature about the sort of making of a home in order to kind of make sense of what was happening in the institution. So for example, I worked with a sample of about 13 uh, flower pot bases, and there's a great deal of variation in their kind of overall size. And I think we've changed quite a bit in how we, as sort of like modern consumers, interact with, say, our own houseplants. We basically go out and get a houseplant and pop it in a vase or a planter and leave it, and it's a decorative feature, and it just stays there. But in horticultural practice in the 19th century, you were in it for the plant specifically. So you were expected over time to kind of migrate a plant that, say, you were starting from a tiny little baby plant, a little seedling. You're expected over time to kind of move that plant between multiple planters of increasing size, because the Victorians were very particular about how things went. They were very strict about not over-potting a plant, so not putting it in a pot that's way too big for it, which potentially would lead to the accumulation of water in the plant pot. It wouldn't be drained quite correctly, so you'd end up with rotted roots or just a wilting plant overall. And not underplanting a uh, plant, so putting it in a pot too small so its root system kind of dies out. And this kind of rhythmicness is very interesting because one of the sort of major concerns and major theories about why people started behaving in disordered ways was that they had somehow violated the immutable laws of the body, as American physician Edward Jarvis put it. So by taking people out of an unhealthy urban nasty society, basically, and removing them to an institution in the lovely pastoral countryside, somewhere where the landscape had been improved into something beautiful and brilliant and soothing, somewhere where the world around them was governed by the natural rhythms of the seasons. They were hoping that they'd be able to kind of restore the natural rhythms of the body. And that, you know, shows up in lots of other activities around the institution as well. Um, and that also boils down into the institutional buildings as well. So plants were also being displayed around the wards, which is an equally interesting phenomena and also comes out in the archaeological record in that you have some beautifully decorated planting pot rims. And normally planters were very utilitarian. We still see that today. You have a very kind of if, if you're looking at a kind of average terracotta planter, you have a very 
non-elaborate collar to that planter. But a lot of the examples from the hospital assemblage had some sort of like egg and dart pattern going. They had scalloping. So there were clear efforts to beautify the plants and beautify the spaces in which patients were living. And in some respects, I mean, they were basically providing patients with patients who couldn't leave the wards with their daily dose of nature. So basically in this context, plants, their kind of medicinal side is not so much them as medicines, but them as being kind of emotionally and, yeah, I guess kind of emotionally helping improve the lives of patients, both when it's kind of internally with the kind of house plants and things like that, and also with the fact that people can go out and garden and embrace nature through actually kind of contributing to the landscape that they're in. So I guess medicinal plants in here would be kind of a therapeutic scheme, a therapeutic through action and environment rather than actually medicines themselves, which is a really interesting point and a very different use of medicinal plants in some of our previous talks. It's all about the plants themselves being used as medicine. It's a very different kind of approach to the medicinal aspect of plants, which is really interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of literature that kind of metaphorizes the human body as a plant during this era. So it really is this kind of microcosm of the institutional landscape where, again, you're removing people into this healthy environment, you're putting them in the sun, you're giving them enough food, enough water, and instilling the sense of sort of moral discipline over them in the same respect that you're instilling a level of discipline over and through the, you know, greenhouse plants and the plants that are kept indoors that have to be moved between window sort of ledges and watered and fertilized and repotted when they get too big. I like that idea. Humans as plants. I think that's a really fun place to end, just humans as plants. Indeed. Um, yeah, so thank you very much for joining on this podcast. My um, pleasure. It's been wonderful interviewing you yet again. <laughs> so as with all our other podcast episodes, we will have a corresponding blog on our website, www.impursuitofplants.co.uk, where Lenny will have some wonderful images from her PhD included in the blog post. Mm-hmm.